This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm happy to get the chance to talk to you today about orthopedic considerations and the management of cerebral palsy. Um, and uh, um, as she mentioned, I'm, I'm an um, orthopedic surgeon, a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at uh, Benioff Children's Hospital at Mission Bay. Um, and I'd like to thank my cohort today, Dr. Ravi Brar. Um, she's my my colleague over on the other side of the bay at Oakland. Um, she's the director of our spasticity clinic. Um, and I know she'd love to be here. She's still on maternity leave. So um, I am filling her shoes today. But um, anyway, so we'll, we have a lot of ground to cover. Hopefully it'll be educational. Um, I have no disclosures. So first, just to start with a definition of cerebral palsy, um, sort of how we see it as orthopedists. So this is a group of disorders characterized by a static encephalopathy, but with progressive effects on the musculoskeletal system. It's caused by an injury to an immature brain. It affects movement, tone, and posture. Um, The clinical manifestations depend on the location and severity of injury to different parts of the brain and has really heterogeneous effects on different people. So um, when we talk about the heterogeneous effects, we sort of talk about how severely it affects a child's motor function. And to explain that, we use the gross motor function classification system. This is how orthopedists and many other physicians communicate with each other about um, uh, the severity of of motor involvement. So we have a GMFCS level one. Um, These are children who walk indoors and outdoors, climb stairs. They can run and jump, but they might have some limitation in their balance and coordination. Uh, A GMFCS level two child Um, They do walk indoors, outdoors, and climb stairs, but they might need to hold onto a railing. They have a little bit of difficulty with uneven surfaces, um, though still not usually using um, assistive devices. A GMSCS level three child um, will walk indoors and outdoors, but with an assistive device, such as crutches or a walker. Um, And then they often use a wheelchair for longer distances or on uneven terrain. A GMFCS level four um, can walk short distances with the assistive device, but will require a wheelchair for more sustained um, ambulation in the community and at school. And then a GMFCS level five is the most severely impaired um, child, and uh, they um, lack uh, a lot of vol- they lack, lack voluntary control um, and anti gravity control of their head. Um, and uh, but this is really how we communicate, and it's important because it impacts prognosis and treatment. Um, so cerebral palsy affects a lot about the musculoskeletal system, mostly and profoundly it affects the muscle in terms of the muscle size, the composition and the muscle force. So abnormal neurologic signals and spasticity will result in muscles with fewer, shorter and stiffer fibers and a longer tendon. And the resulting muscle is weaker with diminished excursion, decreased cross-sectional area um, and leads to uh, decreased joint range of motion and decreased power. So we have smaller, stiffer, stiffer, weaker muscles without selective control. And this is worse in the biarticular muscles, those that cross two joints. So for example, the gastrocnemius or the hamstrings, those muscles tend to be most profoundly affected. Um, And then there's a discrepancy between the muscle growth and the bone growth, which can lead to weakness, bone and joint deformities, loss of function and pain. And there's also this progressive functional decline. So as we said, it's a static encephalopathy, but the muscle, the motor decline is progressive. 
Um, so muscles need stretch stimulus in order to grow. And then with this motor delay and joint contractures and tone abnormality, it limits the physical activities that provide that stretch stimulus. And this inhibits normal muscle growth and development. So there ends up being this mismatch between muscle strength and body size. And this is worsened as the body gets heavier. So as you get a heavier person as they grow and worsening joint contractures and weakness, this leads to worsening fatigue and decline in ambulatory status as kids age, especially as they reach that adolescent growth spurt when function often declines precipitously. So what can orthopedic surgery do? Well, we help with a lot of soft tissue issues, for example, tight tendons, muscle imbalance, and we operate on bony issues such as elbow uh, joint contractures, either you know the elbow, wrist, hips, knees, ankles. Um, we often treat foot deformities, lever arm dysfunction. Um, we treat torsional abnormalities, limb malalignment, hip dysplasia or dislocation, and scoliosis. And then also globally treat gait. So, but what can we not do? That we have a lot of limitations. Obviously, we can't improve the muscle strength. We can't improve their balance that comes from the brain. Um, we cannot improve the selective motor control. We can't decrease spasticity, though luckily we can inject Botox to help with that. Um, and we can't improve communication between the brain and the muscle. So these are all fundamental aspects of disease that we cannot control. The typical orthopedic management of cerebral palsy includes a lot of different things. So we're looking at the spine for scoliosis. We're looking at their hips. Um, to find neuromuscular dysplasia and dislocation or hip flexion contractures. We look at their knees where we often see flexion contractures or a stiff knee gait. We look at their feet, which often have equinus contractures, uh, pes plantar valgus, or even equinocavovarus. And we look at their bone health as well, because these kids are very at risk for fractures. But neuromuscular hip dysplasia is something I'll focus on today. It's a big issue and it's, it's high stakes. Um, so the reason that it happens is because of spasticity or dystonia or the lack of muscle control and these abnormal imbalanced muscle forces across the hip joint w with this spasticity, the adductors and hip flexors and hamstrings become tighter. The imbalanced forces also change the anatomy of the developing bone. So there's increased antiversion of the femurs. There's an increased neck shaft angle of the femur. There's femoral head deformity and epiphyseal valgus deformity, and there's acetabular dysplasia. So all of these things combine to take a normal hip and cause it to come out. So you can see this, this uh, picture on the right side of my screen sort of shows that, that the combination of those forces taking a hip from here to here. Um, and this, you know, when this happens on one side, it leads to a windswept pelvis um, and pelvic obliquity, which can cause a lot of problems. So the risk of hip subluxation and eventual, dis eventual dislocation is directly correlated with the GMFCS system or score. And that's why it's so important to us. So there is a linear directly proportional relationship between hip displacement and GMFCS level. So the overall incidence in, of hip displacement in cerebral palsy is about 35%. But when you look at it based on GMFCS level, it's very different. So the GMFCS level one kids almost never have hip dysplasia, whereas the level fives almost always do. Um, and so this helps us in terms of our um, management of, of hip screening and um, surveillance. But basically any child with cerebral palsy gets a hip x-ray. So why is it important? Well, a located hip moves better with less pain, creates a stable platform for weight bearing. A located hip improves the possibility of maintaining motion and activity with aging. 
Subluxation and dislocation of the hip cause pain, impair function and range of motion and reduce quality of life. And dislocation or subluxation of the hip can lead to osteoarthritis and a stiff, painful joint. Even in a non-ambulatory child, hip displacement can cause sitting problems and imbalance and problems with perineal care. So we need to watch these hips. It's very important. So we don't want to miss the boat. Um, regular monitoring of the hips is very important to identify early indicators of hip displacement. So for this, we need regularly scheduled physical exams and radiographs. And early detection is crucial for early intervention, even in hips that don't hurt. So an early orthopedic in intervention can improve outcome, reduce the number of reconstructive surgery, and reduce the need for salvage type surgeries, which don't have ideal outcomes. So the goal is treatment or prevention of pain by early intervention to prevent progressive hip subluxation. We want to catch these hips before they come out. So we want a good hip surveillance program. And unfortunately, we don't have a population-based hip surveillance program, but it should ideally there would be a population-based targeted evaluation of children with cerebral palsy on a regular schedule to improve the outcomes and reduce the salvage type, salvage type surgeries. This would include physical exams, radiographs, and both of these at regularly scheduled intervals based on their age, the hip migration percentage, which we'll talk about, and the GMFCS level. So many countries, for example, Australia, Europe, and parts of Canada have published guidelines. Um, and in general, they, they all vary, but you know, the GMFCS level one kids typically don't need much in the way of surveillance. Um, levels two and three usually get yearly radiographs throughout childhood, and level four and five are going to have um, hip x-rays every six to 12 months, depending on their severity and age. So part of it is the physical exam, and that's very important. We want to look for their head control. We want to look for their ability to sit on their own and their sitting, their sitting balance. Can they stand? Can they balance? Are the family is the family having difficulty changing diapers? Um, we really look for a symmetry or asymmetry. Is one hip able to abduct and the other side not? Is there pelvic obliquity when they're sitting down? Um, do they have limited range of motion? Are they developing skin breakdown from any of these issues? And do they have rotational abnormalities? So these are just a few pictures of the things that we look at. We look at their the hip abduction, how wide they can spread apart. Um, we look, you can see the pictures of their internal and external rotation. We're looking to see if there's symmetry there. Um, again, many children with neuromuscular abnormalities will have significantly more internal rotation than external rotation. Um, and you can see a significant asymmetry. And for example, this child lying on their back um, that would suggest one hip being much more involved than the other side. So the red flags on a physical exam, uh, we would want somebody to refer to orthopedics if either their hip abduction was less than 30 degrees, if the hip abduction is asymmetric, if the hip abduction is decreasing over time, or if hip extension is decreasing over time. All of these can be signs of hip dysplasia. And um, we're getting radiographs. So, and it's important to get good ones because good x-rays allow us to make good treatment decisions. Um, so it's important to do these with the, um, the legs supported so we don't have an abnormally lordotic pelvis um, and with the knees facing straight forward so we get a good sense of their femoral, um, of their neck shaft angle. And then we're going to be calculating migration percentage, which is shown on the um, top corner um, to the right here, where we're looking at the percentage of the femoral head that's uncovered by the hip uh, socket. This is an example of a progression of um, a hip in cerebral palsy that um, for various reasons, I believe was not able to 
the child was not ever able to undergo surgery, but this is just how these hips march out over time. They look benign early on. This is at 18 months. They're, you know, they have a migration percentage of 10% at a couple of years old. It's, it's inching out a little bit. And by 10, it's halfway out. And then sure enough, by 13, that hip is all the way out. And you can see the femoral head abnormality when they're a teenager. This is a setup for significant pain and disability. So refer to orthopedics if the x-ray shows a migration percentage of over 30%, that is a hip at risk. There are certain tools you can use um, to download on your cell phone and, um, and look at x-rays and have them quantify, help you quantify a migration percentage. This is just a, an example of um, this hip screen app that uh, allows you basically to take a picture on your phone, um, line it up, uh, and then take a look at the um, you can sort of get a good sense of um, the migration percentage of this hip. So we really need organized hip surveillance, which, you know, we, we try our best, um, but uh, ideally, you know, there would be an organized formal hip surveillance national program in the United States. Um, and California does not have an organized program either. Um, but as I had mentioned, some countries do, and they are led by primary care physicians, therapists, rehab physicians, orthopedic surgeons, um, as part of evidence-based care. Um, and the details of each program uh, vary, but they all rely on GMFCS level, um, regular clinical exam, routine radi radiographs to monitor these hips. Um, and it really requires universal access to, um, to care um, and access to orthopedics, uh, buy-in from all caregivers and providers and policymakers. So we are, um, you know, it's been shown in multiple countries that this has the ability to reduce the need for hip salvage surgery um, and has nearly eradicated dislocated hips um, by early preventative soft tissue surgery. So um, it, uh, it's been shown to work. Um, it should be a goal of ours. So get them in. We want these hips in. We know that people do better when their hips are in. So reduced, well-shaped, well-covered hips perform or give you a stable platform for standing and walking. They facilitate level sitting. They allow for greater range of motion, especially in abduction, for example, with diaper changes. Um, and it decreases the risk of a misshaped femoral head and socket, which uh, can lead to osteoarthritis. So um, we're really, by getting hips in early, decrease the risk of hip pain over time. And then in terms of what our surgical options are, um, classically for hips, we're either doing soft tissue releases and lengthenings. This is for more mild hip dysplasia in young patients. Um, sometimes we do various rotational osteotomies of the femur with fem femoral shortening. Um, we may do a pelvic osteotomy, for example, a Degas osteotomy, or in bad cases, salvage procedures such as a hip resection. So this is an example of a soft tissue lengthening. Um, we release the muscles in the groin, um, the adductor longus, gracilis, and iliopsoas, and these muscles are cut and um, they grow back in a longer position. This is an example of a young child who had a hip at risk and underwent um, soft tissue uh, lengthening procedures. And over four years or, or over the next couple of years, the result was durable enough to get them to a slightly older age where bone surgery is more preferable. So soft tissue procedures can be effective at maintaining uh, a hip, um, but avoiding dislocation um, such that you can get to it at a later age when the rate of recurrence is less with a bony surgery. So in the kids who are old enough um, and who have a hip that's at risk or out, um, we often do what we call a VDRO, varicity rotational osteotomy of the femur. 
and a pelvic osteotomy. So this is an example of a hip that was out, um, but was able to be put back in by cutting and bending the femur down and also covering the, um, covering, covering the femoral head with the acetabular osteotomy as well. Um, this is another child who we did recently with a um, left hip on its way out or pretty much out. Um, and again, by shortening and bending down the femur, we're able to get it into the socket. And then we contain it better by bending down the hip socket with this Dega osteotomy um, and putting in a bone graft. And this is the end result where the hip is nicely um, in the socket and not going anywhere. And unfortunately, there are some other um, situations where the hip has been out for too long to be able to make a difference. Um, and so this, this is a child who's older. The hip has been out for years. It causes pain um, with uh, hip range of motion. Of course, it does. The femoral head is grinding against the outside of the pelvis. Um, and uh, in this situation, there's no, um, there's no good outcome of putting the hip back into the socket. And so what we do is we actually remove the femoral head um, and uh, the, the femoral head and neck really just to provide um, more mobility and less pain. Um, this is not ideal if you're a stander, um, but for children who are uh, non-ambulatory, um, this is an option to decrease pain and to increase mobility of the leg. Um, so key points is that hip surveillance is incredibly important. Um, we don't like to be surprised when, they, when kids come in for the first time at age eight with a dislocated hip. Um, we want to get supine AP pelvis x-rays at their initial visit. Um, the risk of hip dislocation is directly correlated with the GMFCS level. And we want people to send um, kids to an orthopedic surgeon if the migration percentage is over 30 degrees. Um, or if their hip abduction is less than 30 degrees or is decreased um, or asymmetric. So hip reconstruction is effective in improving positioning, mobility, and transferring, as well as comfort, perineal care, and health. Um, but it can only be done um, before the hip is already uh, um, uh, completely osteoarthritic. We can't put a hip back in that's completely destroyed. Um, unfortunately, we have not seen much of a difference in caregiver burden, but certainly there is some improved quality of life for the patient. So just to pivot a little bit away from hips, obviously hips are sort of the thing we worry um, a lot about, and, uh, but lower extremity issues are also a very common problem in children with cerebral palsy. Um, we see knee flexion contractures, um, and for this we can do uh, hamstring lengthenings, um, plus or minus uh, growth modulation surgeries, or even distal femur osteotomies to straighten out the knee. We see a lot of kids with equinus contractures um, we always have to be careful to avoid lengthening the Achilles tendon. This uh, can result in weakness and end up in a crouch gait, which can really worsen the picture. Um, gastroc recessions are effective, um, though aren't always durable for the long, long term. They might need to be repeated, especially if the child is under seven at index procedure. But serial casting and plus or minus Botox can be a good temporizing treatment in a younger patient. We also treat a lot of foot deformities. So these can be a, a spastic uh, flat foot or a quinocava varus foot, like a club foot position. Um, and uh, unfortunately, there, there's a lot of muscle imbalance around the foot, which can cause painful, rigid deformities. And these can lead to pressure ulcers and skin breakdown. So our goal here is a braceable, flexible foot. Um, once the foot becomes rigid, problems ensue and the foot is not easily braceable anymore. Um, we often do tendon transfers, osteotomies, and then um, if needed, arthrodesis or fusion um, if the foot is severely affected. 
Um, we also treat a lot of knee flexion contractures in kids. As I said, the biarticular muscles, the hamstrings are at high risk of um, contracture. Um, and so the, um, and they also, kids with cerebral palsy often have a relatively weaker quad, um, also a weak soleus, allowing the knee to fall forward. And this also allows the patellar tendon to stretch out and lengthens the whole muscle unit, making it weaker. So when you have a knee flexion contracture, this requires increased energy consumption as you stand, because as you can see from the diagram on the picture here, when you stand with a straight knee, your ground reaction force or your, the center of your weight is in front of the knee joint. And that allows your knee to stabilize itself by locking itself out and because the posterior capsule of the knee is tight. So your knee isn't able to hyperextend. Um, and so you can rest your muscle. But when your knee is constantly flexed, your, your ground reaction force or your center of gravity will always be behind the knee joint which means that your quad muscle has to constantly fire and that is exhausting. We evaluate this by popliteal angle or the angle that your thigh and your knee make. Um, and, uh, and this can give us a sense of whether or not um, hamstrings need to be released. Now, you know, we talk about surgery at a lot of different levels. We try not to do kids, not, we try not to do operations on kids piecemeal. So what's been developed is a, a technique called SEMLs or single event multi-surgery uh, sur um, single event, multi-level surgery. So we're trying to correct as many deformities as safely possible during one anesthetic, epi anesthetic episode. So we're avoiding what's called birthday surgery. And these are the kids who used to come in for a surgery every time, every year around the same time. And they would find themselves, you know, on the hospital on their birthday every year. So one level at a time can lead to other deformities. So we'd rather just take care of everything all at once. Um, we might even involve other specialists if other procedures need to be done. So maybe they also need something done on their G-tube or, um, you know, plastic surgery needs to do something. We try and do this all at once. This reduces hospitalizations and it reduces the periods of rehabilitation. It's more cost effective um, and it involves less disruption of school and fewer episodes of parental leave from work. So the other thing I'd like to just mention um, at the end of the talk uh, is fracture risk in these patients. And um, this is a, a big deal that sometimes gets overlooked. These, uh, these kids have severe early high fracture risk. Um, low bone mineral density is a serious problem in children with severe CP. So especially those kids with, who are GMF CS, CS levels four or five, um, their risk factors here are limited ambulation, feeding difficulties, malnutrition, um, previous fractures, and especially the kids who use anticonvulsant medications and who have a low fat mass. So the average bone mineral density um, Z scores in the femur are minus 3.4 in kids with severe cerebral palsy. And 77% of them have Z scores lower than minus two. So this leads to an elevated risk of fractures, about 4% versus 2.5% in healthy children. And healthy children are often getting their fractures off, you know, by falling off the monkey bars, but a child with cerebral palsy may just have a fracture from a seizure. So this, or just from be, or just from transferring from their wheelchair to a bed. This is a child I take care of who had a femur fracture just from being moved from his wheelchair. Um, and, uh, and so the other thing that can make these difficult is the lack of verbal communication, which leads to a diagnostic delay. Um, and then with the mobilization that's needed, 
Um, that leads to decreased weight bearing, which worsens the osteopenia that they already have and puts them at higher risk of a further fracture. So this can be somewhat of a downward spiral once a fracture occurs. And bisphosphonates are really of unclear benefit in cerebral palsy. But this is just an example of a patient I care for um, at the moment. This was a femur fracture that he had a couple of years ago. Um, and then he healed, but then he had another fracture on the same femur. And then we had to operate on it and plated him. And then he had another fracture on the same femur. And now I've had to, you know, plate pretty much his whole femur. So this can really be a, um, a, a difficult problem to, to deal with once these kids start having fractures. So goal setting is an important thing, just something I'll touch base on um, in the last couple of minutes. But it's really important for us to ask these patients and families what their goals are. So we want to focus on what makes the most improvement or impact on their quality of life. So is it diapering? Is it sitting balance? Is it being able to walk? Is it being able to continue to use their standard, which we think is really important. Um, and we want to discuss all these goals and, you know, develop shared and realistic goals and objectives for treatment. Um, we want to discuss a plan to achieve and maintain those goals. So for example, it's really important that the family understand that this may require a lot of rehabilitation, a lot of physical therapy after surgery in order to get the best result. Um, and successful orthopedic surgery is really reliant on a big interdisciplinary team, which at its bare minimum includes the orthopedic surgeon, the rehab physician, the pediatrician, the physical therapist, the orthotist, the nutritionist, and, and more. So this is, a, this is a big team approach to make sure that all team members are, they know what the plan is so everybody can work together and optimize um, the patient's outcome. And our goals depend to some extent on their GMFCS level. So, you know, we want to improve and maintain their function and decrease the tendency to decline. Um, we want to prevent or treat pain and to some extent even help the appearance, for example, the appearance of their gait and really focus on their quality of life. So for a, a GMFCS level uh, one through three child, um, we want to optimize their gait efficiency, their energy conservation. As I said, with knee flexion contractures and a crouch gait, that makes it very exhausting to stay on your feet. Um, we want to preserve or improve physical function, maintain their independence, um, and, um, and also decrease their, you know, their reliance on walking aids and orthotics, if possible. Um, we like symmetry. Um, and oftentimes a 3D gait study can be helpful to us in terms of planning these procedures to make sure that we're doing the right things. And then in terms of goals for a GMFCS level four or five child, um, you know, we're really looking at improving health. So particularly improving their pulmonary health, improving their skeletal health and improving their quality of life and, you know, having life without pain. Um, and we're looking at positioning in the wheelchair, making sure that they don't have a significant pelvic obliquity that might worsen a scoliosis. Um, and uh, we don't want contractures to preclude wearing, um, you know, certain types of clothing, shoes, braces, etc. And also to make sure that, that kids are able to have appropriate perineal care and diapering. Um, we want braceable feet. Um, and we want to facilitate transfers and also to protect our caregivers because those little kids grow up fast and become really heavy and can be a strain on a back. So um, the other really important part about orthopedic surgery and cerebral palsy is getting them ready for surgery. So this is just an example of a form that we have, you know, families fill out to make sure that everybody thinks of everything from every possible um, sort of all the different contingencies. 
Um, so we want to make sure families have thought through what the complications might be, what they're looking at for post-op recovery, you know, what kind of nutrition they need going into the surgery. And so to make sure that they really understand all of the factors that go into a big procedure like this. Um, and this is just another example of a roadmap we might give to patients so that they can really understand the journey here um, because it, it can feel quite complicated and daunting to families. Um, and then just underscoring again that this is a big team approach um, and we need a lot of different specialists involved through many different parts of their care, all the way from you know before even the referral to the decision for surgery and to optimizing their post-operative outcome. Um, these are complicated patients in a lot of situations. Uh, we have a lot of additional perioperative uh, considerations that we don't have for some of our other healthy um, our, uh, patients without comorbidities. So we have airway considerations. So sometimes these kids are a challenging intubation. They might have difficulty with airway clearance. Some kids will end up intubated for a while after their surgery. They might have chronic restrictive lung disease that we need to worry about worsening with surgery. Um, and uh, a lot of kids will also have either obstructive or central sleep apnea. And they might, you know, we might need to make sure that they either have oxygen at night or get a sleep study. Um, pain control can have bad effects in children who have a delicate balance. Um, so this might, uh, you know, worsen the respiratory situation or cause a lot of GI side effects. Um, and uh, we need to consider patients' anxiety. These are kids that go through a lot. Um, and uh, this is another big hurdle for them to go through. Nutritional status is really important um, for bone healing, for soft tissue healing. We want to we make sure that they obtain a healthy weight prior to the start of surgery. We need to think about their um, GI dysmotility and how the surgery might affect that. A lot of these kids have issues with constipation, issues with, with seizures. We want to make sure their seizures don't worsen in the perioperative period. Um, we want to make sure they're getting enough vitamin D so that their bones can heal. And uh, if they start off with anemia, those are also things we need to make sure we think about in terms of blood loss during surgery. So these are complicated cases. Um, but it's very, we really like our pediatricians involved. This was a study that showed that, you know, pediatrician involvement before the preoperative um, uh, visit led to a lot fewer sort of emergent or urgent last minute studies prior to surgery. So we want our pediatricians to be, um, you know, we need their help in making sure these children are optimized. Um, and then just, uh, I'm, I'm wrapping up right now, but the, just a, a final word on access to cerebral uh, access challenges for CP. This is another area that we're sort of working on trying to improve. You know, we work at a children's hospital. Cerebral palsy is defined as a childhood disease, but is a lifelong problem. And, um, and life expectancy in most cases is long into adulthood. Um, and so we really need to find more um, orthopedic and rehab providers for children who grow up and become adults. Um, and UCSF is working on that, and we're developing an adult spasticity clinic that is still in its early phases, but is growing. Um, so that is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to orthopedic management of cerebral palsy. But thank you for your attention. And, um, and uh, this, these are just the faces of, of orth pediatric orthopedics at UCSF. Um, hopefully you've gotten to know some of these people, uh, my colleagues. And uh, um, thank you so much. I'm all set. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.